Right, thank you. Uh, I knew I was doing a double act, but actually following what Michael's just said, it's, said it feels more like a, a triple act. It was a sort of perfect introduction, I feel, for uh, what Kate and I have to say. Kate and I are going to talk about the effects of uh, inequality. Um, and our work, in a sense, we're in a rather embarrassing position because we've been showing that inequality is related to a whole range of different outcomes, not just health, but, uh, I don't know, drug abuse and violence and teenage births and everything else. Uh, and we get invited to talk about uh, these things and actually we're not experts on any of them. Um, and I certainly don't feel an expert on obesity. What I'm going to do, though, uh, is to give the sort of background, uh, try and give you a flavour of why we think inequality is such a powerful force. And then Kate is going to uh, talk more specifically about how it relates to uh, obesity. We think of uh, inequality as a psychosocial stressor. It's, it's a main effects on the populations in rich countries are through the psychosocial effects of superiority and inferiority, uh, inferiority uh, social stratification, that it intensifies the effects, if you like, of, of social, social stratification. But thinking of human beings as, as uh, highly social individuals, I suppose, and we were talking, I was talking with Roger Flood earlier, about uh, you know the appalling stresses people had in earlier centuries, was, you know, children dying and working all around the clock and hunger and so on. And now we're talking about stress in, in these circumstances. It seems to me the answer to that um, is that uh, for a social animal, stress is mediated uh, by social affiliations, by community, by social hierarchy. Um, and so, although I'm not going to talk about it at all, I do think one of the really important changes in the last um, generation or so, uh, since the middle of the 20th century, is uh, geographical mobility. You know, the breakup of communities that we used to live, I think many of us probably remember uh, meeting people who'd never been to the centre of the town they lived on the edge of, or who'd lived in, I don't know, the Midlands in Britain and never been to London. I remember helping canvass in a local election and uh, finding that there were 30 people in the same village with the same uh, surname. So the breakup of community is remarkably uh, recent, and I think it has to be understood in terms of its likely effects on social affiliation and things like that. Um, and the breakup of families and the importance of social support that uh, we now increasingly recognise. But I am going to talk about social status. I think both of these factors have to be understood, at least our sensitivity to them, have to be understood as an evolved sensitivity. You know, basically, other people can be the best or the worst. Are they rivals? Uh, where you have to watch your back, fight for what you can get, learn not to trust them. Or are they people with whom you depend on for cooperation, security, and, and so on? Um, and I suspect that's why the quality of social relations is so crucial and has been shown repeatedly in, in uh, um, social epidemiology as an important uh, source of uh, psychosocial stress and uh, health effects. What I want to start off, though, is, is just showing you first this sort of contrast between these are rich developed countries, you probably can't read their names, but um, national income per person and life expectancy. I want to show this just 
to make it clear there's absolutely no relationship between how rich some of these developed countries are um, and levels of life expectancy. So countries like the USA and Norway are twice as rich as uh, um, Greece, Israel, Portugal, and yet it makes no difference to their life expectancy, although we know health is worst in our poorest areas. And that's because within each of these countries there are social gradients in health like that. So we have to think about health, uh, sorry, about income within our societies as important in terms of social position, relative income. Uh, what matters is where we are in relation to other people. We must think of relativities, and that's why I, talked, uh, I said that I was uh, uh, going to talk about the psychosocial effects of inequality. So actually having a whole lot more, being able to buy twice as much as everything, doesn't matter. Um, but what does matter is the differences between us. Kate and I have, as I said, been looking at figures uh, amongst the rich developed countries, uh, looking at levels of inequality. Uh, the measure we use is quite simply how much richer the top 20% and the poorest 20% in each country. Um, and in the more unequal countries, there's seven, eight, eight and a half times as rich. The richest 20% is the poorest 20%. In this end, only about half that, three and a half or four times as rich in Japan, Finland, Sweden, Norway. Um, so really big differences. And what I'm going to be discussing is something like that. I think in a sense, what, we're, what we are trying to do in these two uh, talks um, is not to provide a rival theory to the... Um, idea that it's uh, the welfare regime, but a more specific version of it. Um, you can see that in, in this uh, um, spread, that uh, up at this end you've got Portugal, and uh, sorry, Japan, um, and also Sweden. They get their equality in totally different ways, though. Uh, Japan has fairly small income differences to start with, before taxes and benefits, and it has fairly low social expenditure um, in comparison with many other OECD countries. Sweden, on the other hand, has very large uh, earnings differences before redistribution, depends much more on taxes and benefits. We've done all the work I'm going to show you, not only on these rich developed countries, but also on the 50 American states. And we find rather the same contrast um, in how some of the states become more equal. For instance, New Hampshire and Vermont um, are both amongst the more equal states, but they get their equality again in totally different ways. Vermont uh, is more like Sweden, uh, higher taxation, higher social expenditure. New Hampshire, um, it has, I think, the lowest state, of, uh, lowest state taxation of any state except Alaska and very low social expenditure. Um, but it has different, smaller earnings differences to start with. That's why I think that this is a more specific form of the uh, uh, theory about welfare expenditure. And indeed, I hope we're going to show more about the uh, mechanisms that make us sensitive to inequality with these outcomes. Let me just tell you, though, the part of how we see obesity as part of a larger picture. We got data uh, for many of the sort of social outcomes that have social gradients, uh, which of course obesity is one. 
He got internationally comparable data on life expectancy, maths and literacy scores, infant mortality rates, homicide rates, the proportion of the population in prison in each country, teenage birth rates, levels of trust, obesity, uh, mental illness, and uh, social mobility. And just to be brief, here they all are in one index, all weighted equally, and you can see an extraordinarily close relationship. Um, uh, I've not talked about uh, um, a correlation to die for. Uh, these would be correlations to... <laughs> well, it, it's, a, it's a 0.87 correlation, I think, this. Um, and as you see, all the, the, the tendencies for health and social problems to be consistently worse amongst the more <coughs> countries. It's not a matter simply of the English-speaking countries or their model, I think, of welfare states. You can cut them off. Uh, you can cut off uh, USA, UK, New Zealand, Australia, and you've still got a significant relationship down there. <coughs> Nor, if you put most of those back on uh, and remove the Nordic countries, uh, does the relationship disappear. Even though we've got rather few countries, uh, it remains significant. You can cut off a few outliers there and a few of the ones this end. Um, it's consistent across the, the range. Um, though, as I do think, there are very different kinds of societies uh, in that. Uh, just to say that the reason why there's no relationship uh, between uh, national income per person and life expectancy in that first little graph I showed you is because we, I was just showing you these countries. That's, those are the countries we're talking about. Early in economic development, obviously, growth is very important. Um, and so with all sorts of other outcomes, early stages of growth are important, for instance, in terms of levels of happiness or well-being, but later stages not so important. Put that index I showed you of uh, health and social problems uh, in relation to national income per person, and there's no relationship at all. You might think there's a downward drift, but forget Portugal for a moment, and you won't think there is in the USA up there. Now, we were worried that people would think that we just sort of selected problems to suit our argument. So we also looked at the UNICEF Index of Child Wellbeing, which has 40 different components uh, in every aspect of child wellbeing, whether kids can talk to their parents, what immunisation rates are like, whether there's bullying at school, all those sorts of things go into it. We took out the proportion of children in relative poverty in each country because that's rather like a measure of inequality. And might seem circular. Here is child well-being on that UNICEF index um, in relation to inequality and uh, more unequal countries doing, uh, kids doing much worse. Put that same index of child well-being in relation to national income per person and there's absolutely nothing happening at all. Um, so we have to think about income not in terms of absolute material standards but in terms of the psychosocial effects of where you are in relation to other people. Let me just show you a few of the individual... Oh, sorry, this is just to show that looking at uh, similar measures in the United States, we get a very similar picture. Uh, these are a few elements of child well-being. There isn't a UNICEF index for the 50 states, uh, but we've got uh, many of the components here, and uh, here they are related um, to income inequality. It's an analysis of the 50 states using ecological um, 
measures and uh, average income. And you can see that although uh, teenage births is significantly correlated uh, it's with average income, it's more closely correlated with income inequality and all the others more closely correlated with income inequality, but most of them hardly at all with average income. So very much the same picture, uh, looking using a completely different test bed on the, the 50 states in the USA. I, I suppose I think that uh, a lot of the effects are addressable in, in, uh, to early childhood. It seems to me we need a sort of two-stage model for understanding this. I'm not arguing against the things that Thorkildt was saying earlier uh, this morning. I think that early childhood is very much part of this picture because adults pick up uh, an, an experience maybe of adversity, of low social status, of the uh, difficulty of, um, uh, of life, and then pass it on to their children whether through the effects of maternal depression or not having time for your children or being bad-tempered with them, uh, those all serve to, um, to program the child's development. And I think rather than thinking of that uh, early sensitivity as a kind of biological or evolutionary mistake, uh, we have to think of it as uh, what shapes children's development for the kind of social relations they may have to deal with. Now, I said earlier that other people can be the best or the worst, and maybe the sensitivity to the kind of social environment in early childhood uh, is telling us whether we do have to fight for what we can get and learn not to trust others, or whether we depend on em empathy and reciprocity and cooperation and our security depends on the goodness of our relations with other people. Those need quite different uh, um, Developments. We were, Kate and I were talking to um, Steve Suomi um, a few months ago, and he has just uh, he was telling us about some data they have from monkeys, macaques reared differently. Um, one's reared by the um, amongst their peers, and the others reared by their mothers. And they had looked at epigenetic effects of that differences in difference in rearing and found 4,000 epigenetic changes that he said must be affecting every single, every of his physiological and mental um, system. So I think that how we are shaped for different kinds of social environments is extremely important and of course also has to do with whether we store food or not. But I am getting onto Kate's territory. Uh, let me just point out, though, that uh, how similar the relationships are, whether you look internationally, uh, here is the relationship between uh, trust and income inequality internationally. Uh, it goes from about 15% of the population feeling they can trust others up to 60% sort of or more. Here is the relationship amongst the 50 states. Um, it doesn't seem quite as low, or nearly as low. Uh, it goes up to a very similar height, and it's a very similar sort of strength of relationship with inequality. So we are looking at a very similar picture in two quite different test beds. Um, homicide. Um, these are American states. Uh, this isn't our data. It comes from Daly and, and Wilson, and uh, down here, um, Canadian provinces. Here there's a, a tenfold differences in, in homicide rates, from 15 to 150. Child conflict, strongly related to inequality. 
mental illness, threefold differences in mental illness, national rates of mental illness in the survey year, um, strongly related to inequality, teenage birth rates, uh, proportion of the population in prison. I, I wanted to show you not only those trust measures, but if there was more time, the social, um, social capital um, variables, because most of the partner measures of social capital, whether in Italy or the United States, whether cross-sectionally or over time in the United States, are closely related to inequality. I'm emphasizing this because it's, it's part of a very fundamental uh, ad adaptation, I believe, to inequality. And people have always known uh, intuitively that inequality is divisive and socially corrosive. And that's exactly what the data shows. Um, you see not only measures of trust and social capital falling off, but measures of violence increasing. Uh, this actually, although it shows, you might think it's a reflection of crime, that more people are in prison in more unequal countries, and look at the scale of those differences, that's a log scale on the vertical side, so something like tenfold differences in the proportion of prison population locked up in each country. But actually, that's a reflection mainly of uh, more punitive sentencing in more unequal countries. So it fits in with the picture of the decline of trust, the increase in violence, the decline of social capital. People are more out for themselves. And uh, we have various measures that suggest that uh, concern for the greater good, social um, responsibility, um, public spiritedness also seem to be lower in more unequal countries. So I think that things that you might think of as just cultural differences between societies, we believe they are actually created by differences in inequality. Uh, they, they are adaptations, uh, fairly fundamental adaptations to inequality. Um, and that if you're going to talk about social stress, as I'm glad many people have here, uh, it is crucial to see how stresses, um, you know, whether we're talking about the kind of thing in the 19th century or more modern forms of stress, are mediated by uh, how much you're by yourself, whether you're in a social hierarchy where people have to fend for themselves, or whether you're surrounded by friends in a, a, a closely knit community. So we believe that that kind of social mediation of stress is absolutely uh, crucial. Um, not just for the pe uh, people at the bottom. I've pointed out once or twice that uh, the differences uh, in outcomes between more and less equal countries are very large. Um, too large to be explained by what's going on amongst the poorest alone. Uh, I can't show you very much of the, the data which makes it clear that the um, effects of inequality, uh, although they're greatest at the bottom of society, they go all the way up. Um, but there was a paper in the British Medical Journal about two weeks ago that uh, a meta-analysis of multi-level models looking at health in relation to inequality, uh, at the individual level controlling for individual level in relation to individual income in relation to health. Uh, an analysis actually has included individual data for 60 million people and it showed these uh, um, contextual effects of inequality. Um, and indeed, colleagues at Harvard have talked about inequality as uh, a social pollutant because it doesn't just affect people at the bottom of society, but uh, apparently most of the way up. Um, 
Yeah, just to emphasize the the psychosocial mediation of this, that, you know, violence is more common in more unequal societies, not because the poor are attacking the rich, but because of people's sensitivity to feeling looked down on and shamed and uh, humiliated. Those are the common triggers to violence. In a meta-analysis in which people were, uh, of studies, endless studies in which people were brought, asked volunteers to come into the psychological laboratory, then exposed to experimental stressors, while having cortisol levels measured, so they were interested in the cortisol response to um, uh, experimental stressors. The meta-analysis of all those little pieces of research was interested in what kind of stressors most reliably raise cortisol levels. And they found that it was tasks that involved social evaluative threat, threats to self-esteem and social status, where your performance can be judged negatively. You know, very like why violence is uh, triggered by feeling disrespected and looked down on. Um, so, and just to finish, uh, we think of inequality as increasing the social stresses that feed into, as Kate will describe, into obesity uh, through more downward prejudice, racism, and classism. You know, you maintain your social status partly by showing your superiority. Um, that uh, people in more unequal countries, and people have mentioned working hours in a couple of papers earlier, uh, I think I have it yes, here as a graph of working hours in relation to inequality, it comes from Lowe's and, and Park, huge differences actually, sort of 25% difference in working hours in more or less equal countries. But um, uh, I think pace of life goes with that because, of course, how you show your status and why people work harder is because money becomes more important. It's, it's your car and housing and labels on your clothes that show where you belong. Uh, the weakening of community life. Um, the stronger social evaluative threat, by which I mean that uh, um, social... Um, social status competition and social insecurity, uh, status insecurity probably increase um, with inequality. So in a sense, uh, I would argue that, the, that inequality uh, intensifies or amplifies the effects of social stratification in society. And that basically what we're talking about is whether society is a steep social pyramid like that or a much shallower one like that. And that is driven substantially by um, the scale of material differences. Thank you. It has a much harder job of showing how obesity fits into that. Can you read that? This is the secret shame of Paris. It's the pre-dawn roundup of fat <laughs> French women. To stand beside our real, real differences between countries. We had a hard time finding a cartoon for our book about obesity because so many of them are so negative and reflect so strongly the prejudice we feel about obese people and we didn't want to have anything. Nasty. Yeah. Um, so Richard managed to come and give a talk to an obesity conference without mentioning obesity much, but I'm going to show you our data on obesity for the moment. Um, so this is the percent obese in what unequal countries, and these are adults. Um, related to that measure of income inequality that Richard showed you, the 2020 ratio. <coughs> so in the more equal countries, around 10% of adults are obese, and in the more unequal ones in the USA, it's around a third. And this is a statistically 
significant relationship. Um, it's steeper for women than for men, and I'll come back to that later. So just like the social gradients within countries are steeper for women than for men, so is the relationship with inequality internationally. Um, these are data for US states. Again, it's a significant relationship, um, although not impressive. These data are actually very kindly given to us by Professor Izati at Harvard um, to somewhat overcome the problem that he had mentioned earlier about the problems of self-reported data from the behavioural risk factor surveillance system. He has calibrated those data by using measured heights and weights from N. Haynes, and these are the calibrated estimates. When we looked at inequality in relation to self-reported health in US states, there wasn't anything. So there's obviously something going on between inequality and how you report your height and weight that is probably quite interesting. Here's children overweight in different countries. Um, the Netherlands is the lowest, USA highest. Again, a significant difference. And here are children in the more unequal states. A stronger relationship between inequality and um, child overweight in the states than there was for, um, for adults. We've had a little look to see if there are things about um, welfare regimes that might be related to obesity. And Agna, earlier you showed us a slide relating public expenditure to um, obesity with a, with a slight relationship. But when we look at social expenditure specifically and take out things like defence spending, um, we find that neither social expenditure nor public health expenditure are related to levels of obesity internationally. So income inequality is, but those kinds of public spending are not. Um, for children, social expenditure and income inequality are independently associated with childhood overweight. So both seem to be playing a role. In the states, um, state income inequality I've shown you is related to adult obesity and child overweight. Um, and look at state tax burdens, there's no evidence that those are related to either of those measures. And thinking more about um, changes in welfare regime, we've seen, we've seen real changes in income inequality. I'm not sure how strong the changes in welfare regime we've seen are, but we have seen in some countries a doubling of the obesity rate in a very, very short time. And the um, epidemiological transition from the rich being thin and the poor, uh, sorry, from the rich being fat and the poor being thin, um, to seeing it the other way around, and having to really recognise that fat is a class issue in our societies, and sort of what that means and where that comes from. I think we, we've heard a lot earlier today about the physiological processes um, by which stress changes the way we respond to food, where we put our weight on, that we tend to put on um, weight abdominally if we're stressed. Um, and this, this diagram is a bit misleading because it suggests that obesity is sort of a human phenomenon. And in fact, we've learned a lot about obesity and the relationships between subordination and stress um, from primate studies. And um, this year, Carol Shively and her colleagues have published a review of their years of work with non-human primates, looking at subordination and looking at social stress and looking at how um, those monkeys respond physiologically in terms of obesity and cardiovascular risk factors. And Richard mentioned the um, non-human primate work being done on epigenetics as well, which is telling us a lot about how stress 
and subordination getting to the body. I want to move on to two notions in relation to um, social status and stress and obesity. We have looked and found that um, calorie intake is higher in more unequal countries. This doesn't explain the income inequality obesity relationship, but it explains even less of the relationship for women. And I think that's important. I mentioned on the last slide that we understand how stress is related to abdominal fat deposition. But what we've also learned from studies of animals and people who are stressed is that they choose foods with more sugar and fat. There was a study in Finland where people were divided into um, stress-driven eaters and non-stress-driven eaters. And those whose eating was driven by stress ate sausages, hamburgers, pizza and chocolate um, and drank more alcohol than the non-stressed people. So these are the ways that sort of comfort eating um, is, is related to stress. And there are also studies showing how food stimulates the brains of chronic overeaters like drugs are stimulating for addicts. Addicts, they're working on the same centres of the brain. But I haven't really said anything yet that you've not sort of heard already this morning. And perhaps the only perspective that I can add that we've not really heard today um, is the perspective of a woman. And I think food and eating and being thin or being fat are matters of status for women in ways that are different to how they are for men. Obesity is clearly linked to social mobility for women. And this idea that you can never be too rich or too thin is expressed in, in a really strong link between class and weight for women in ways that they aren't for men. And several people mentioned earlier today that the chocolate cake test was mentioned, I think, by, by Peter, that you know, when, when presented with something delicious and sugary and fatty to eat, um, you eat it. And Michael mentioned, you know, you have the big pizza or you have the enormous pizza or the big coffee or the enormous pizza. If you're a professional woman, you don't have either. You don't eat the chocolate cake and you don't have the pizza. You have salad or you have a very small cup of black coffee. You'd rather eat your hand off, actually, than have the pizza or the chocolate cake. And that is why we have such a strong social gradient in obesity for women, because your status is so much more tightly tied up with your body image um, for rich women compared to poorer women. So how we feel affects how we eat, and how we show our status affects how we eat. We've heard a lot about fast food chains as well. And in looking into sort of research into use of, um, sort of anthropological research into use of fast food, we came across quote after quote from people lower down the social scale who said how much it meant to them to be able to eat in a clean, um, hygienic, cheap restaurant where they showed they could go out, um, they could afford to be in restaurants. I just want to read you a couple of those quotes. A member of a Hispanic street gang um, said that he ate all his meals at fast food restaurants. Because he said, kids don't want to eat their mother's food. It's rice and beans over and over. I want to live the life of a man. And fast food gets you status and respect. And another family, an immigrant family, talked about how they couldn't actually afford to buy their children things like expensive shoes and toys and clothes, but they could take them out to fast food restaurants and feel that they were part of a society that they had um, status because of it. 
A 17-year-old said how if you can buy fast food, it proves you've got money in your pocket and you're not waiting for a welfare check um, at the end of the week. And another homeless man said how he felt comfortable and relaxed if he went to um, a fast food restaurant. He said there isn't any profanity there, there are plants, there are pictures, people keep things neat here, and it makes you feel like you're in civilization. So the appeal of fast food chains to people whose status is compromised by their position in society um, is quite important. I'm going to be much quicker than by a lot of time, trying to get back on schedule. Um, basically, I think what we're saying is that subjective social status is linked to fat distribution and obesity. And indeed, many of you will be familiar with the ladder measure of social status, where you ask people to mark their position on the ladder to say, where do you think you stand in relation to society? Where do you actually stand? And subjective social status is more strongly linked to fat distribution and obesity than objective measures. I think that's important. So we think that lessening the burden of inequality um, would help reduce obesity through mechanisms of comfort eating and status eating and reduction in socioeconomic inequalities in the first place. So that's sort of the message we want to leave you with.